Well, in the words of John Calvin, for those of you that have been with us and even those of you that have not, we've been walking to the cross uh, in the book of Matthew. And in the words of John Calvin, uh, we now come to the closing scene of our redemption. The closing scene of our redemption. Up to this point, uh, everything has happened just as Jesus said it would. And we've looked at all three of those occasions. Uh, He said he would go to Jerusalem. He said he would be handed over uh, to the Gentiles via the scribes and Pharisees. That he was going to suffer. He was going to be mocked. uh, He was going to be flogged or scourged. And he was going to die. And everything happened just as he said it would. In the book of Isaiah, we read that he was despised and rejected and oppressed and stricken and smitten and afflicted and put to grief. He was pierced. He was crushed. He was cut off. He was wounded and slaughtered. And again, in the words of Isaiah, he did so to make intercession for sinners. He did so to take on our griefs and sorrows. He did so to take on the judgment and chastisement that was our due. In other words, He came to save sinners. That's why He came. If we go all the way back to Matthew chapter 1, that's why the angel, that's what the angel told Joseph. He would be named Jesus because He would save His people from their sins. So we have Him at that moment on the cross doing just that. Atoning for our guilt, atoning for our sin, atoning for our transgressions, atoning for our iniquities. You know, I think sometimes we forget exactly what took place on the cross. Sometimes we forget exactly what Christ did, what He paid for on our behalf. As I told the children, there are four specific things. There, there are more, but there are, I think, four foundational consequences that you and I face as sinful people because of the sin that we inherited and because of the, our sin nature, because of, of the sins that we commit. And there are four things in particular that resulted from that. One was we had been found guilty of offending a holy God. We had been sentenced to death. And we were, at one time, awaiting His wrath. Another is that because of our sin, God was actually angry with us. Thirdly, uh, we were separated from Him because He is holy. And because of our sin, we were separated from Him. And then finally, we were also in bondage to that sin. We were also in bondage to Satan and As the old hymn says, we were captives, his captives, and we loved his service well. Things did not look good being in that state, being in that position. But fortunately for us, uh, in verses 6 and 8 of Romans 5, it says this. Paul writes, for while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For us, we were in a position where we were unable to do anything about our our position and our standing before God in and of ourselves. We were in need of help. We were in need of assistance. We needed to be raised from spiritual death to life. We needed to be delivered from our sins. And it was Christ who did that 
for us. It's called a, a, a penal substitutionary or vicarious death or atonement. Penal means that he has paid a penalty uh, that was due or owed. It was substitutionary or vicarious in that it was done for someone else. Christ, who himself had no penalty to pay, he had no sin in and of himself, paid the penalty on behalf of undeserving sinners like you and like me. He became sin on our behalf so that we might become, in Paul's words, the righteousness of God. He satisfied or met those four consequences that we were facing. It was through His death that He paid the penalty for our sin. It was through the cross that He absorbed God's wrath and He removed our guilt, taking it upon Himself. Paul writes in Romans 6, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the writer of Hebrews says that He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Voluntarily going to the cross to pay the, sin, pay the debt that you and I owe. He also satisfied God's, rank, uh, God's anger and He restored us to favor in God's sight. In Romans chapter 3 it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. And in 1 John chapter 4 it says, And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. He satisfied God's anger. God looks at us as His children and we are favorable in His sight. And He also reconciled us through His death. We were enemies and now we're His friends. In Romans 5 it says, For if we were enemies or while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. We have, we have been reconciled to a holy God. We who are sinners, deserving of death, have been reconciled and made right. And then finally, He redeemed us through His death. He broke those chains of sin. In Ephesians 1, verse 7, it says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Now, do you hear the tense of all those verbs? Our sins have been paid for. The wrath has been absorbed. Sinners have been reconciled. We have been redeemed. Therefore, on the cross, the Lord Jesus removed every barrier. The Lord Jesus on His cross completely absorbed the wrath that was due to sinners. The Lord Jesus fully and completely absorbed that wrath. He fully and completely reconciled sinners to God. He fully and completely removed the condemnation. And replaced it with divine favor. It's been done. It's been accomplished. That's why Jesus says, it, He said on the cross, it is finished. It's been paid in full. Uh, the atonement was actual, not potential. And that's why we sing. Many of you have sung before. We've sung it here. Jesus paid it all. 
There is nothing left for you or for me to pay. And how do we know that? Of course, we believe the Bible to be true and we read that in Scripture. But but we believe it too because of this last scene of redemption. We can count on what Christ has done on the cross and the price that was paid. And we know that it is for us because of His resurrection. In each of those times that we've looked over the last few weeks, we've looked at all three of those occasions. And He said, I must go to Jerusalem, I must die. And thirdly, I must rise from the dead. He included it because of how important it was. He must do it. He must go to the cross, but it needed the cross needed to be confirmed and validated and ratified. The full and final payment had to be marked as the, by the Father as acceptable. The Father had to approve. Death had to be defeated. And that came through the resurrection. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not been raised, we are still in our sins. Payment was made on the cross, yes. Everything was fully and completely accomplished on the cross. Nothing is added to it through the resurrection. The resurrection says, yes, it is finished. And so as we look at this, probably the longest introduction I've ever had. But in light of that, we come to this passage in this final scene. And I want us to notice simply three things. Three things about this final scene. One, his death is not in question. Secondly, his resurrection is not in question. And yet, there is a question to ask, and that question is, how will we, how do we, how should we respond? How should we, how do we, how will we respond to the fact that His death, there is no question about His death, and there is no question about His resurrection. Let's begin in verse 57 of chapter 17. His death is... Or, I'm sorry, 27. His death is not in question. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in clean linen, a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone in the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. And the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter or deceiver said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of, uh, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, it would have been one thing if the followers, if we only had record of his followers witnessing and testifying of his death. But in these ten verses, we have several people from various backgrounds, as well as from both sides of the aisle, so to speak, that are verifying his death. And the first one is Joseph of Arimathea. 
Uh, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, though he was a secret disciple of Jesus. Uh, Mark describes him as a member of a council, so he was a teacher uh, in Israel. Uh, He's apparently a very prominent person uh, because he is able to ask for and receives an audience with Pilate after hours. Um, And he's also apparently very wealthy. Uh, We know that he had a clean linen shroud and a a new family tomb. And we also know that because of his fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9, uh, where Jesus would be buried. But when we look at all that and we take that all into consideration, uh, we know that it would be, uh, he has a significant, he has a lot to lose. He's got a lot to lose if this in fact is not true. If this is some scheme, uh, if this is some manipulative trick, uh, Joseph is putting himself on the line. But then we've also got Pilate. We look and see Pilate in this narrative and we know that the normal practice was to let someone stay on the cross and at some point he would be brought down and then he would be thrown into a mass grave. But Joseph of Arimathea goes to Pilate and says, I would like the body. And Pilate, of course, says, go get the body. And they bring the body to him and he gives him to Joseph. At some point in time, if Pilate, not himself, at least those that took him off the cross, would have been able to say, look, he's not dead. But we know he's dead. And and Pilate, of course, has also got a lot to lose. And so he's not joined in to this so-called scheme because he has too much on the line as well. But third, we also have the Marys who were there when Joseph wrapped Jesus in linen and laid him in the tomb. And not only that, they come back later, as we'll read in just a minute, they come back to anoint his dead body. So they've seen what Joseph has done. They come back believing he he is, in fact, dead. And then lastly, we have the chief priests and the Pharisees. We don't just have believers of Jesus. We also have his enemies. They come to Pilate and they ask that his tomb be sealed, uh, that, that a guard be placed out front. There are some that think, you know, was a Roman guard placed out front? Were the, uh, did the Sadducees and Pharisees have a guard that was placed out front? And there's back and forth. Irregardless, there is a guard standing out front of the tomb. And they don't ask for that seal to be placed and the tomb to be guarded uh, because, he's, uh, because he's alive. They say we want this to happen because he's dead and we don't want his disciples to take him as if he's been resurrected. So they even verify that Jesus is dead. So there is no question whether we're taught, whether we're looking at those who are following him or those who put him to death. There is no question that Jesus was dead. There also is no question that he was had been resurrected. Verse Verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 28. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come see the place where he he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb. With fear and great joy and ran to his disciples and behold, Jesus met them and said greetings and they came up to him and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid, go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and 
they will see me. And while they were going, behold, some of the guard went to the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Again. Mary, the Marys come believing him to be dead. They come to anoint his dead body. And along the way, Mark says that they realize, how are we going to get in? There's a stone. What are we going to do? And as they approach, an angel comes. There's an earthquake and and the angel rolls the stone away. And the angel announces, he's not here. Come and see. The stone is rolled away, not so that Jesus can get out, but so that the Marys can look inside and see that he's not there. He says, don't be afraid. I know you seek him who is crucified. I know you seek Jesus. And so we have an angel of the Lord testifying of his resurrection. But then we have the women, they leave having been told and they go on their way and who do they encounter but Jesus? And so they not only are test, give testimony or eyewitnesses of an empty tomb, but now they have seen him alive. And then, of course, to make sure again that it's not just uh, the followers who are corroborating the story. We, he, we see the chief priests and the elders attempting to come up, to a pl- come up with a plan to explain... What they know to be true in in a different way, right? They know the soldiers that were around the tomb were afraid and fell as if they were dead. As if they had passed out. They see everything that's going on. They head back and say, this is what we saw. So we've got more eyewitnesses as far as the guards are concerned. And then they tell the chief priests and the elders. The chief priests and the elders begin to come up with a plan. because they're, and, and now they're kicking themselves, right? Because they remember back in 62 to 66 of chapter 27, you know, had they not put the guards there, put the seal on it, what would they be able to do? They would be able to say his disciples had stolen them. Now, God is using them providentially, their plan, to make sure that no one believes he's risen from the dead to actually validate the fact that he's risen from the dead. And then, and then their plan is way off, right? If anybody asks you, you tell them that his disciples came while you were sleeping and took him. How would they know if they were asleep? Right? They're, they're, they're running in circles. So like the death, there is no question about the resurrection. And that leaves us with one question. How do we respond? How will we respond to the fact that Jesus did die as he said he would and that he would be raised as he said he would be? Because the truth is the the facts are fixed. The events and the circumstances and the details um, are not only the same, but substantiated and verified by a wide variety of people. Oh, and by the way, Jesus did appear to, Paul says, to 500 at one time and then to himself so the eyewitness accounts keep adding up. And 
And they're from opposing camps. So yes, he died. Yes, he rose from the dead. How should we respond? And in this passage, we have two responses. Two responses that help us. Let's look first at the chief priests and the elders. We've already read and seen that rather than acknowledge the truth, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. And they do so because they have a lot to lose as well. They have uh, power, prestige, position, reputation, standing, just to name a few. And the bottom line is if they acknowledge that he was in fact resurrected, then they have to acknowledge that he was resurrected as he said he would be resurrected. And then if they acknowledge that he said that he, he or he was resurrected as he said he would be resurrected, then they had to begin to acknowledge the fact that he had told truth in other ways, including that he was the Messiah. And then if they have to begin acknowledging that he was the Messiah, their only response is to what? To submit to him and to encourage others to submit to him as well. And I think that was the ultimate deal breaker. Because for many today, I believe it's, it's the ultimate deal breaker too. And what I mean is this. So many today reimagine, come up in their own minds about who Christ is and was. Many today attempt to redefine the reason for the crucifixion. Different theories about why and he was just an example. It wasn't a vicarious atonement and he just wanted to show how much God loved us and so forth. And, and they, they remove that, that substitutionary, that penal substitutionary atonement from the mix. And they're trying to redefine that. And, and really, there are, there are many who also reject the resurrection. They just don't believe, they, they say they don't believe it's true. And in the end, what they're ultimately doing is simply trying to do whatever they can to reinforce their own rebellion. In other words, they want to reinforce their own personal rule and reign in their life. They, they want to, like the chief priests and elders, they've made moral choices. And because they've made those moral choices, when someone confronts them about those moral choices, they begin to circle the wagons and, and they have to manipulate and they have to lie and they have to uh, create false narratives and they have to create uh, sin-friendly parameters around the environments that they've created to stay safe. Because they want to keep making those same choices. And they don't want to give it up. toward the end of Paul's argument for the resurrection, having already said that if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And having already said that if Christ has not been raised, we're still in our sins. And there's no hope and that we should be pitied, really, for believing such nonsense, to put it, or to paraphrase. He then says this, if the dead are not raised, let's, we might as well eat and drink and be merry. If Christ has not been raised, let's eat, drink, and be merry. And that was something that some of us from Trinity Grace heard for several months, right? We were going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And what's the reality? The reality is many seek satisfaction in worldly things. 
They enjoy those choices that they're making. They enjoy living in excess and being in control of their lives. And they don't want to have to change. They don't want to have to answer to anybody else. The, the reality is, I mean, in our sinful state, we love our sin. We don't want to let it go. And we don't want to admit in that state, we don't want to admit that we're wrong. We don't want to have to admit that, that we're doing something that's destructive. And we also don't want to admit that we're unfulfilled or lacking in something. There's too much to lose. And if, and if Christ and His death and resurrection are acknowledged, then they have, we have to, in that, in that sinful state, in that, apart from Him... We have to acknowledge not only of His death and resurrection, but the reason for His death and resurrection. That means we have to acknowledge our sin and our need for His Savior. And we don't want to go there. We definitely don't want to submit. So rather than face the truth and face the call, the facts are changed. The circumstances are changed. The reality of the death and resurrection are changed. That's one response. But there's another. There's another response. Look at verse 8 again. So they, the Marys, depart quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said, do not be afraid. There is an alternative. There is an alternative to the rejection of the death and resurrection of Christ. The Marys fall at His feet and worship. They see Him and worship. They see Him and therefore believe that He has been raised from the dead. And believing that He was raised from the dead, what do they believe? They also believe why He was raised, why He died and why He was raised from the dead. And what do they do? They submit to His Lordship. They fall at His feet. They worship Him as King of kings and Lord of lords because He is the only one worthy of that. They acknowledge who He was and what He came to do. And notice too, their their mixed emotions, right? Fear and great joy. Why fear? Well, fear is a common common emotion when we come face to face with the truth of God's Word that we are sinners. Standing before a holy God. We are, are, should be rightly afraid because we've offended that God. So it's a natural response. But for those who are in Christ, for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is also great joy. There's great joy that comes from knowing that He has paid the price for our sin. There's great joy of knowing that He has been faithful to forgive us our our sins and continues to be faithful to forgive us of our sins when we repent of and confess our sins before Him. There's great joy in knowing that our standing because of Christ is fixed and final and good. And there is nothing that we can do. As we read from our assurance of pardon earlier, there is nothing that we can do to change that standing. We cannot undo what Christ has done through His cross and that's been approved by the Father through the resurrection. His death and resurrection show the extent 
It shows the extent to which he has gone and will go for those who will believe and trust in him. It's phenomenal what the Lord will do. What the Lord has done and what the Lord will do. So our question, right? How have you, how have I, how have we responded To the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. How should we respond? How will we respond? For those who have come to know Christ by the gift of faith that God has granted. And you've confessed your sins and professed Him to be Lord. And you've been saved. And as every week here, you leave experiencing great joy because of the truth of the resurrection. But if you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, let me ask very simply, will you continue to reinforce your own rebellion? Will you continue to acknowledge or or will you acknowledge and repent of your sin? Young and old alike. And if you find yourself tonight in fear of, of thinking, and, and maybe thinking, but, but Chris, you don't know what I've done. Believer, non-believer alike. In your mind, you're thinking, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know the extent of my sin. I'm not worthy and deserving of God's forgiveness. You're right. I don't know. And you're right. You're not deserving. That's what makes it grace. And there is nothing that's outside the grace of God. Absolutely nothing. And if you will confess your sin and repent of your sin, may you hear the very first words spoken by a risen Savior. Greetings. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Repent and experience the joy of knowing your sins are forgiven and the hope of eternal life with Him. The message of Easter. Let's pray together.